All right. Um, okay, so we're starting a new series. It's called uh, The Little Letters, and we're talking about the little letters because it's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we have a tendency to kind of pass through those letters because they're really short and they're really easy to read. And so I would suggest that if you've got a little time sometime this week, go ahead and read through them all. It'll take you about 15 or 20 minutes, and it's really, um, I think it's really an important thing to do, especially as we look at this series. And our series guide is now upcoming through the app. We should have some physical copies here, um, hopefully by next week, but you can go read along with us and study with us through this whole time. And one of the things I love about this particular, this particular group of writings is this. It is a pastor writing to his congregation. So as you know, this is get written towards the end of the first century, towards 100 AD or so. Um, it's after the sack of the temple in, I believe it's 89, um, by Domitian and his troops. So there's been this diaspora. They've gone all around the world. And John has moved over to Ephesus. He's in Turkey, and he's writing a letter to his people because there's this incredible language of endearment that he uses, which we'll get to. But the truth is he's writing this letter because it is a congregation in crisis. They were having issues because they were not discerning. They were not being thoughtful about who they should be listening to. Bad theology makes bad Christians. And by the way, bad Christians make bad humans. And so this is what was beginning to happen. And the crisis that they were experiencing was Christological. And what I mean by that is that they were struggling with the idea of who Jesus was, what Jesus was, God, human, both, not either, whatever. It was, it was really difficult. And just so you know, all heresy is kind of Christological in the end because we're believers in Jesus. That's what makes us Christians. But this crisis is something that creates a very different trajectory for your church. If you don't believe Jesus was human, you go this direction. If you believe he was only human and not God, it goes this direction. The way you think about Jesus has huge implications for how you live and breathe and laugh and play in the world. Like it matters a lot. And so this is a pastoral letter written to a congregation whom he knows. And the pastor at different times had to speak prophetically. And when I say speak prophetically, I mean a pastor has to say, hey, don't go that direction, go this direction, right? Prophetic has to do with kind of the direction you're sending people on. It doesn't have anything to do with, I mean, it has something to do, but it's not really future telling. It is prophetic in the sense of um, leading a direction. Number one, he had to speak pastorally. He had to speak to these people as if he was part of the community and he loved them. And he also had to speak theologically sometimes to help them understand the God that they were trying to worship and understand and also to correct some misunderstanding that was happening in the church at the time. And then he also spoke to them as a friend because he hung out with these people. He was with these people. It's one of the reasons why I really like being a pastor because you get to take on all these different roles at different times depending on what is needed and what God has for the congregation. And, and the author leans into that very much so. But when you read this book, I want you to do this. I want you to listen for the clues of love embedded within the text. Because he talks to his people as if he knows them and he loves them. And we all like getting letters from someone that we love. They sound very different than getting a letter from someone that we don't know. So this is important. But one of the things is he, he wanted what was best for them. And he knew that what was best for them was an understanding of God, a better understanding of God than they might have had. So he's speaking to them both like I said, prophetically, but also theologically. And this is why theology matters. 
it's not because he just wants to be right. It's because he wants them to understand what love is and how that love is expressed through who God is. This is really the process of discipleship, right? To be a learner about who God is. And, you know, we have a tendency to think that it's at the beginning of the Christian narrative that John is writing because it's in the New Testament. But, and as important as beginnings are, and beginnings are very important, we... We're actually jumping in a little bit later. The context of this is at about second and third generation Christians. Now, this is important to know. Do you remember, do you remember buying that car you're driving now when it was new? Do you remember that? Some of you have never bought a new car, so this won't work as well. But um, when you buy a new car, you don't want anybody to eat in it. You don't really want your kids to be in it. Like you want to, you really want to take care of it. And about six weeks later, you're digging out in and out fries from the front seat, right? And we, um, because, because when something's not shiny and new anymore, we have a tendency to treat it a little bit differently. And we are now not talking about first generation Christians. We're now 90 you know, 90 AD plus, moving towards the turn of the century. And so we are now into second and third generation Christians. And so some of these people had gotten their faith from their parents or their grandparents, right? And, and it, you know, Adventists are like this too. You know that. Because if you're an Adventist and you're, you know, we're doing that, hey, who do you know that I know that's Adventist? And you go back and forth and do we go to the same schools and this and that. Eventually somebody's going to say, well, I'm a fifth generation Adventist right? Like a badge of honor, like it was something you did, you know, like it wasn't a DNA lottery situation. You know, well, I'm a fifth generation Adventist. And like, oh, how is that for you? Is it hard? Is it hard? But the problem is when something's new, we all love it. When something's old, we'll, like we get a little distracted in it. And if, if I mean, are you living a hand-me-down faith? Because that's what some people were living. And when you live a hand-me-down faith, a faith that's not yours yet, a faith that was given to you by somebody else, you have a tendency not to steward it in the same way. And you have a tendency to like novel thoughts about that thing. Because now that Christianity had been around for a while, people were beginning to mess with the core tenets of Christianity, right? It's not just Jesus. It's like, well, who is Jesus? We've had some time to think about this. And this is the, engage, this is the, the discussion and conversation that was being engaged in. And there was heresy that was jumping in. Just for context's sake, again, here are the heresies that they were really dealing with. There was the Ibionite heresy, the Gnostic heresy, and the Docetist heresy, or Docetism. Let me break those down real quick. I know this is a lot to download on you today, but it's important for us to understand the context that we're talking about. So the Ibionite heresy was that the Ibionites couldn't accept the divinity of Jesus. So Jesus was just a man. He may have been a man elevated by God, but he was just a human being. That's it. Then you've got the Gnostic heresy. And Gnostic heresy has a tendency to lean into secret knowledge, right? That not everybody has. So let me tell you something and I'll let you into our heresy, which people get it really excited about. Um, and really, in a nutshell, it's that life was separated into two parts. The flesh, which was evil, and then the spirit, which was good. And you can imagine the implications. If Jesus came down and was in the flesh, we call it incarnate, right? Enfleshment. If Jesus came down and was in the flesh, then he couldn't have been good. So they had a real problem with Jesus coming down and God being in the flesh. They didn't like that. So they fought against it. And then thirdly, there's the docetist heresy, which if we could put it into a word, we would call it semism, which is 
Jesus was fully God, and he just seemed like he was a human, but he wasn't a human at all. In fact, there are some that even said it went so far as to say his feet never actually touched the ground. They were just barely above the ground when he was walking, you know, like an elf in Lord of the Rings or something, leaving no footprints. Sorry, that's a very specific reference. You may not catch. It's okay. Um, so these were the three heresies that were really floating around at the time. Now, this is a problem because if you think Jesus was just a human being and not God, it sends you off on a particular kind of trajectory, right? If you think that um, he was just God and not human, then, you know, you have a tendency to be a little fatalistic and say, well, I can never do the things he said. If you think flesh is bad, then you're going to treat yourself a certain way. If you think only the spirit is good, you're going to treat yourself a certain way. Um, For us, for us, you know, 2,000 years later, we've come to an understanding, and this I think is pretty theologically sound. I shouldn't say it's pretty theologically sound. This is one of the tenets of Christianity. Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. He has to be. And the reason why we know this is twofold. First of all, his divinity is what we call quiescent, which means it is shrouded. It means he didn't, he didn't access that divinity. But we do know he did have access to it if he wanted to. How do we know this? Here's a good example. Remember the temptations of Jesus found in Luke? Okay, so the temptations kind of work like this. Um, He was hungry, 40 days, 40 nights. Satan went to him and said, turn these stones into bread. That's a dumb temptation unless you can do it. If I came to you and said, hey, it's 12 o'clock service, you've got to be hungry. Turn these speakers into bread. You're going to be like, no, 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 go ahead, do it. You're going to say no, but you're not saying no because you don't want to. You're saying no because you can't. And if you can, do it quickly because I'm a little hungry. Of course you can't, right? So it's not a real temptation. These were real temptations that came to Jesus. Throw yourself off a mountain. The angels will catch you. Well, that's the use of his divinity. So we know that Jesus was 100% divine and 100% human, both those things. Also, if you think that Jesus was just 100% human and not divine, it's going to lead you to some really bad bad theology. For instance, if you think Jesus was 100% human and there was no divinity in him, and you think he was 100% human exactly like you were, not Adam, then what you're going to think is, I can do all the things that he did, right? So that means I can be sinless too, and it's going to lead you to perfectionism or righteousness by works. And that's going to be a deathly kind of theology for you. And so it really matters. Theology like really matters. And this is what John wanted to tell his people. These were the heresies that he was dealing with. But before we jump in, we've got to deal with this thing of authorship. Because just so you know, it is a little bit contested. There are some people who go, well, maybe it wasn't John who wrote the book of Revelation and who wrote the fourth gospel. Maybe it was somebody else. Well, who else would it be? Here are the options that are given through scholarship over the last 2,000 years. Some say it was John the Apostle. Some say it was John the Elder, which was another John writing a little bit later. Some say it was a disciple of the Apostle, so somebody who knew him and studied under him and wrote with his pseudonym. Some say it was a literary tool of some other author completely. And then some say it comes from a school of thought that was around at the time. Now, that's a lot, right? That's a lot. So let me break it down a little bit. John the Elder would have been somebody who would have been familiar with the way John spoke, but um, 
John the Apostle spoke, but not necessarily John, right? A literary tool, well, that would have meant that there was a completely other author. The problem I have with this is that in the first century, they accepted this writing not as a literary tool from somebody else, but as the actual apostle with authority that the apostle holds. Now, a school of thought, the best example of a school of thought being written from would be the story of the Good Samaritan. If you remember that story, there's... Um, the expert in the law came to Jesus and said, what must I do? And Jesus said, you tell me, what does the law say? And he says, and he's speaking from one school of thought. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that was the right answer, Jesus said. Jesus said, you're right. And that came from the Shammai school of theology, right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there was another school of thought that was going on at the time, which was the Hillel school of thought. The Hillel school of thought said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and be pure. So when Jesus explains the story of the Good Samaritan, he contrasts those two schools of thought, right, with the priest and the Levite who would have been from the Hillel school saying, love the Lord your God and be pure so I can't touch that body, with the Samaritan who actually had the right theology, which was the Shammai theology, which was love your neighbor as yourself to the end. So there could be a school of thought situation going on. However, well, I mean, so who, right? Before we answer the question of who, I want to ask you a question because this is a deeply kind of foundational question when, the way, when you go to Scripture. The first question is this. Can God use whoever the author was? Can he use these words for the edification of the body and for the glorification of Jesus Christ, even if it wasn't John the Apostle writing it? Would that be okay? Can God use the words of these books to let us know who he is regardless of the author? And my answer to that would probably be, well, it is, yes. I actually do think it's John. I think there's enough parallel with the fourth gospel. I think there's enough parallel with his writing that we can say with pretty good confidence that it was John the Revelator who wrote these three chapters, these three books. Um, but if it's not, I think I would be okay with that too. I mean, do you remember the first time you learned that the book of Isaiah took like 700 years to write? Do you remember that? Maybe, maybe it's right now. <laughs> Sorry. So we'll have to unpack that later, I suppose. Um, yeah, that book was not written by Isaiah sitting down in a cave and just writing something. It was, it's a compilation of prophetic writings over a significant amount, amount of years, right? So, but God has still used the book of Isaiah in pretty powerful and prophetic ways. Well, same thing can be said for the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, for the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. So I'm not sure authorship matters as much. However, it's good scholarship to find out. I have a tendency to believe that it was John. So I'll say not just the author, I'll say John. But is it okay to ask these questions? My answer to that is absolutely. Because we just came from a series where we asked a lot of really deep and foundational questions, right? And we said church is going to be a safe place to ask the questions that we need to ask, right? We're not trying to get someone to think their way out of faith. What we're trying to do is get you to think about your faith really well. So our faith is not afraid of the questions. God is certainly not afraid of the questions. We have established that. I think there is evidence, like I said, for John, but I'm kind of good either way. But this book, as we begin it, we need to understand. It's this letter that, that is written to a group of leaders that were being led astray by those who had already left the Christian community. At least in theology, they had left. They might still be hanging around, right? And, and they, 
they are searching for truth and John wants to give them that truth. And he wants to help them understand that truth by seeking their commitment to what John is saying they already knew, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they knew from the very beginning. But it's also, and this is important for you to get, these three books are also an incredible book of reconciliation because people were leaving the church and John is inviting them back. They're always willing to come back to the church. The reason why I think this is important is that we all know, every single one of us sitting here knows someone who left church. Sometimes they left because they were hurt. Sometimes they left because of a a theological difference. Sometimes they left because it ceased to be relevant for them anymore. I've been in ministry a long time. And anytime I talk to someone and they say, I'm going to leave for whatever reason, or I always say this to them, hey, you're always welcome back. You are always welcome to come back to church. No matter what you've said against it, no matter what you've said against me, doesn't matter. We want you back in church. And I want you to know that this church is a church that is safe for people who want to come back to church, who want to dip their toes back in. Even if they've left because they were really angry or really hurt, we want to help. So just know that. And I want you to be a conduit of that when you have someone in your life who is saying, you know, I haven't been to church in 20 years, but I don't know, I sort of miss it. Like that's an opening if someone says that to you and say, hey, I've got a place for you. You don't even have to go in and hear the sermon. Just come get a cup of coffee with me. We'll hang out in the lobby. We want to be a church that's safe for people to come back. And 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is a a bunch of writing of a pastor who wants to see these people come back. So it begins like this. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. Right? And this beginning is really connected to the, the incarnation of Jesus, right? We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, who we have heard and seen. So they're saying, like, it was in the flesh. He was right here. It sounds a little bit like the fourth gospel, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It sounds very much like that. It also sounds like Genesis 1.1, which is what the fourth gospel sounds like when it begins. In the beginning, beginnings are important, right? But this one is more focused on Jesus, says, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have seen and heard. From the beginning has been used 10 times in this writing, but it is most frequently used in the context that we are to love one another from the beginning. This is the idea that the gospel begins in love, it ends in love, and that's the major context of the whole gospel is love. Now, we were just in a series called Elemental where we said we want you to find what is most elemental to your faith. We're going to get back to that series after this series. But this series is about what John thought was elemental. And it's clearly, clearly about love. But he continues on in 1 John 1, 1, finishing it. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He's the word of life. They're acquiescing to the idea that, that they are eyewitnesses who is writing this text. And John is kind of using the royal we, but I think he's talking about the apostles that he spent time with and shared life with when Jesus was there. So he's saying, listen, everything you've heard, not just from me, but everything you've heard from Matthew and Mark and Luke and all these other apostles that were preaching in the first century, we know this to be true because we saw Jesus. We, we hung out with Jesus. We gave Jesus high fives across the, 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 the campfire. Like, He was a dude. He was a real guy. And it was real important for us. He is the word of life. See, do you see already how he's fighting against the heresy that's there? He's already saying he was human. He is also life. 
He's the word of life. So he's saying he was God because we saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. And he was, he was human. And he was God because he is the word of life. The one who is life itself was revealed to us. And we have seen him. This is another important theological point. He's saying what we know about God doesn't even come from us. It actually was revealed to us by God. So all the understanding that we have, even through the touching and the seeing and the smelling, all that was still revealed to us by God. So this knowledge is not even ours. It's God's knowledge. This is connected to the fourth gospel, right? It was with God. He is life itself. Life begins in him. What's the origin of life for John, for Paul? It sounds like I'm talking about the Beatles. For John, for Paul, for Ringo? Sorry, it's inappropriate. Um, for, all of, for all of them, life began with Jesus. This is why Paul uses the language of being born again. You were born, but life didn't begin until you met Jesus incarnate in the flesh, Emmanuel, with you. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. So you know what? He's not only the origin and author of life, he's actually life sustainable and life eternal. He was the one, he was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us, again, consistent with the fourth gospel. This is the idea that, the, that this knowledge is not even from us. It's not secret. By the way, now he's pushing back against the Gnostic heresy. It's not secret. It was revealed to us. It came from God for everyone. You can know who God is. It was completely revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have seen and heard. It's a reiteration, right? He's saying it again. Proclaim to you what we ourselves have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Now that's interesting. It almost sounds a little arrogant. We're going to teach you this stuff so you can come hang out with us. But it's more than that. Because what John understood to be true is that there is something about the body of Christ when it comes together. There's something about the fellowship of believers that God inhabits. Because he doesn't say that you may have fellowship with us and leaves it there. He says that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is when the community of God is gathered together, so there's the presence of the Holy Spirit. By the way, we actually believe this. You know that. I mean, at least we sing it in our songs. So if we don't believe it to be true, we're singing weird words. Because we believe that where two or three are gathered, therefore, there is also the Holy Spirit. And that means that we are engaged in a much greater community than just a bunch of people sitting the same direction, singing at a screen. We're actually believing that the Holy Spirit inhabits our praises, inhabits our worship. We believe that worship is actually a tool against Satan trying to take over our lives and destroy the world. We actually believe that this is a weapon that we use because the presence of God is actually here with us. We actually believe those things. These are not empty words. And then he says one more thing. He says, we're writing these things so that you may fully share our joy, which is beautiful except that's not how we normally hear it. This is the New Living Translation. It sounds a little bit different. The way we normally hear it through the NIV is that we write this to make our joy complete. And in older translations, it says we write this to make your joy complete. So it's really pretty universal, right? So well, how would that work? How does complete joy work? You see, what John is saying is, we want you to understand these things so you feel comfortable in our fellowship because we believe the same things about this Jesus. 
And when you feel comfortable in our fellowship, you acquiesce and you affirm the fact that God is in the midst of this community as well. And when you acquiesce and affirm that God is in the midst of this community as well, then joy begins, right? And here's the way it begins, right? By acknowledging Christ incarnate, Christ with us, Emmanuel. That's where joy begins for the Christian, right? And then it is expressed in fellowship. This presence creates in us a fellowship that is beyond mere friendship and it is beyond mere consumption. And I want to recognize something. The way that we do church in this century is way different than the way they did church in the first century. They were not all sitting here looking at a screen because it's, the way we've set up church is very easy, very easy to consume church as a product or an entertainment as opposed to engaging in the fellowship of believers. This is why images of like the table or communion, these things are incredibly important for the Christian because we know this isn't it. This is a moment in our life as a fellowship of believers, but it is not the whole thing. That fellowship, when you have true fellowship that moves beyond friendship, when you meet with people and share with people and pray with people and study with people and grow those deep spiritual connections with people, that's what brings joy. And so that's what John is inviting people into and back into. But you gotta kinda ask the question first, what kind of faith are you living? Is it shiny and new? Is it a hand-me-down faith? Is it tired? Is it broken? Is it breaking? And is your joy complete? Fellowship matters, and John is making this point, as well as making all these theological points about Jesus. He says one other thing. He says, you know, our joy will be complete when you're back with us, when you fellowship with us, and we're together in the community of Christ. And it's really true, because have you ever felt immense and intense joy by yourself? You may have, but what do you want to do with it when you have it, when something great happens to you, the first thing you do is try and find the people you care about most to share it with. And if you can't do that, you post it on Instagram so at least somebody will see it and like it. Right? That's what we do. We do that if just the food is good. We want people to share in the joy of this taco we just ate. So community matters. And John is making this call that you... Stay in community or come back to community. But because of the way church is set up, and I know this isn't really fair right at the end of the sermon to drop this on you, but because of the way church is set up, we have to talk for just a moment about what it means to be in fellowship with one another through church. And so I'm going to do this quickly. And again, I apologize. This is the last slide of the sermon, but it can't just be coming and consuming. It has to be more. The first thing you have to do is engage, which means you walking in, grabbing a coffee, sitting down, singing, getting up and leaving is not enough. You've got to engage with the people next to you. You've got to engage with the people that you walk by. You have to engage in the worship, not as a consumption, but as, a, as, a, as an expression of your faith. You have to engage. The second thing you have to do is you have to invest. And I mean, you've got to, you've got to move past what the church can give you 
and figure out what you can give the church, whether it's your time, your talents, your treasure, however you want to sort it out, right? The church needs you probably more than you need it, but you've got to invest in it. Then we do this by employing the gifts of the Spirit that God has given us. And every single one of you has been gifted in incredible ways for a particular purpose, for a particular time, and for a particular group of people that only you can reach and you can touch by what God has given you. And then lastly, and this is the one we don't get to nearly enough as a community. We need to learn to enjoy one another, to enjoy being in the fellowship of people who not just believe like us, but seek the same God and the same Christ. When we do that, our joy becomes complete. And I've always found it fascinating that when, when like, I'm gonna use the social media metaphor again. There are people who are really active, right? Like they post everything. But have you ever noticed when they get into a relationship with someone, at first they post a lot because they're very excited. And then they sort of forget because they're finding joy in their life and they don't need to seek affirmation from somebody pushing a heart on a screen somewhere. Oh, that we could all find so much joy that social media became superfluous to us, that we didn't need it because there was too much joy. Why would I stop what I'm doing to take a picture? Because all the affirmation I need is the people around me and the God that we serve. But it only happens if we move past consumption and move into true fellowship, which in turn gives us real and true joy. Let's bow our heads together today. Jesus, um, I, I want my joy to be complete, and I know that it can only be complete in you, but it can also only be complete with these people the way that we commit, communicate, the way that we collide in the life that we live. Lord, we, we need this, us, but we need you in the midst of it as well. And you've promised that, right? Where two or three are gathered, two or three hundred, two or three thousand, you'll be there. So Lord, we're gonna ask that you make your presence really known so that our joy may be complete, but always be complete in you. So Lord, accept our worship today. Inhabit our prayers. Lord, be a presence in this, in this space. So we can say we, that we testify to what we've seen and what we felt and what we've touched. And that is you with us. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.